Good morning, church. Do you have your Bible? Please, please take your Bible out or turn your Bible on, depending on how modern you are. If you don't have a Bible with you, you will find one near you, and you will absolutely need it this morning. In fact, this is a unconventional sermon because at a certain point, I'm going to be quiet and turn it over to you for a few quiet minutes so that we can actually put into practice what I this morning want to teach you. Beginning this Sunday and for two Sundays following, all we are talking about is the simple but great topic of how you can get to know God better. The most extraordinary gift you could ever be given is a personal, growing knowledge of God. We live in a celebrity-obsessed culture. I share a little bit in that I can occasionally act like a, like a fanboy, depending on who's in the room. I embarrassed a Hall of Famer for the Dallas Cowboys by trying to sneak a picture of him. And he looked up and said, come on, man. And it was very embarrassing, I'll be honest with you. Uh, he refused to identify and to admit who he was. I knew who he was. They don't, God doesn't make many men that look like that who walk on earth. So I tried to take a picture. He was a little sad. I showed him that I erased the picture and said, but hey, you gave me a lot of great memories in the 90s. Thank you. And he said, you're welcome, man. So it really was him. And for a while, I was pretty stoked. But it's, it's trivial. It's meaningless, really, by comparison. Any other introduction, any other growing friendship, any other family relationship pales in comparison. All the best friendships and all the best families are only pale reflections of the best friendship and the real eternal family relationship that by the grace of Jesus you've been offered in knowing God. That's what this series is about. And really there's just three movements that, to keep it very, very simple, there's only three movements in getting to know God better. You have to hear from Him. You have to talk to Him, and having heard from Him and communed with Him, because He is your heavenly Father, and not only that, but the King and the Creator of the universe who is life and who gives life and makes it and is in charge of everything, having heard from Him and talked to Him, you should actually do what He said. You should obey Him. Today we're going to talk about how to know God specifically by adopting a very simple habit that is simple, but for many Christians also difficult to keep. And that is how to read your Bible so that you can actually know God. Not to read your Bible as homework, not to read your Bible as drudgery, but to read your Bible habitually, personally, privately, that you can then share with others from the overflow of the relationship that God gave you through the knowledge of His Word. It should and it will spill out unto others People who don't spend a lot of time thinking about God generally don't talk about Him very much either. We only talk about the things we spend a lot of time thinking about. If you will, habitually, and you won't do it perfectly, but if you will do it habitually, if you will diligently give yourself to the daily practice of hearing from God through your Bible, you will get to know Him. In fact, I will 
suggest to you that if you give yourself diligently from this, these final days of October to hearing from God in the Bible, you will be a very different kind of person by the time we celebrate Easter together. It won't be long. But if you will, more often than not, give yourself to the daily practice of privately hearing from God through your Bible reading, you and everyone around you, people who love you and people who aren't so sure of you, everybody should be able to tell the difference because you have spent dedicated private time with your Heavenly Father hearing from Him. So really, just four things to share with you, and the first is this. You need to pursue the God-given blessings of consistent Bible reading. And to show you why Scripture reading and why Scripture itself matters so much, there's no better place for us to go than to the center of your Bible in Psalm 119. Please look with me. Psalm 119 And I want you, when you arrive there, it's in the middle of your Bible, I want you to thumb through Psalm 119 and notice how long it is. You hear the hum of recognition? How many verses does it have? Somebody tell me. 176, and the reason for that, and it's dotted with strange words over different paragraphs… This is a Hebrew acrostic. Those strange foreign words over every paragraph are the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. That's why it's so long, and the first line of each verse begins with the letter above it. It's a memory aid. It's poetic. It invites people into the fullness of God's Word, and it's long on purpose to poetically communicate something that God's Word is complete and has a great deal to teach you and will take you, as you're going to see as we read together, will take you through every season of life, every emotion, every hue, every note of music, exhilaration and joy and happiness too deep for words and also crushing loneliness and sadness and sorrow and fear. It's all found in the world and because God cares about this world, it's all found in His Word as well. And the first thing you need to do is to pursue the blessings that God has personally promised if you will only give yourself to reading His Word and hearing what He says. I have really good news. That's a simple thing, and you can do it. And in fact, nobody can keep you from it. You live in an extraordinarily amazing, historically unique time. You're literate. You have the Bible in English. If you download the app that I recommend at the end of this study, I've given you some free resources and two things to purchase for about 50 bucks, you can have a great beginning of Bible study tools all your own, most of them free. You can have, you can read your Bible anytime you please. The algorithm that's driving you crazy could be used, could be replaced instead with time in God's Word in those spare moments that are presently filled with almost anything else. So I'm just going to suggest to you four things that you can do as you pursue God's given blessings in reading, and then I'm going to show you a few things that you can practically do. You don't have to do each one every day, but if you will begin to engage personally with God in what He said in His Word, you're going to find all kinds of blessings. The first being this, it will help you follow God through all of life. 
It will help you follow the author of life through your life. Look in Psalm 119. I'm just going to read its first two sections. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed here means a deep-seated contentment, a deep-seated happiness that doesn't necessarily depend on circumstances, a satisfaction with God. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart who also do no wrong but walk in His ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes, then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Let me show you how this particular portion of poetry works. Did you notice how many synonyms Psalm 119 uses to refer to Scripture? Verse 1, the law of the Lord. Verse 2, His testimonies. Verse 3, His ways. Verse 4, His precepts. Verse 5, His statutes. Verse 6, His commandments. What's going on here? Well, repetition is boring, don't you agree? Wouldn't you agree that repetition is boring? Don't you think that repetition is boring, especially when it's overdone? <laughs> In such cases, I find repetition boring. Got it? The psalmist is exploring and reflecting on all of his life. Great joys, great happiness, failures, shortcomings as a young man, times where he has forgotten what God said and felt shame because of it. He's going to look forward to, as he says, the Word of God being a light and a lamp for his feet to walk securely. It's all here. And all of these synonyms are all referring to the same thing. The New Testament had not yet written, but Psalm 119 anticipates the time when God had completed his scriptures to us. And they can be understood in every dimension that these words imply. Commandments, statutes, word, way, it's all true, and it applies to every person who wants to follow God and know God in every dimension of their life. It will help you follow God. It will also, it will restore you when you lose your way. Verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? The psalmist acknowledges that he has not always been as faithful as he promises and plans to be. Look back up with me, please, in verse 4. 
You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. The psalmist says, if I can keep what you said in front of me, I won't go through the shame of disobeying you and those consequences. I've been reading that little handful of verses I just read to you for decades and it always has this single effect on me. It may, not it may not have that effect on you. That's just how it hits me. It always reminds me of youthful sinfulness. And other times when as a grown person who knew full well better, all the times I decided I knew better than God and thought to myself, sometimes very consciously, I know what God says, but I'm going for it anyway. You ever done that? What did that bring to me? That, bring, that brought shame into my life. That brought guilt on me. How do I get back to where I should be? By going back to the same Lord who acknowledges that, who already told me in His Word, this is the way through life. This is the way. This is the way I want you to walk in it. When you get off the path, I'll show you the way back. It will also comfort you. The Word of God regular intake will comfort you. Look in verse 25. My soul clings to the dust. You ever felt that way? Again, this is poetic language. It's like good songwriting. It's deliberately, purposely vivid and emotional and intense. But do you ever feel like you've just been beaten down? My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. Look how relational God is. When I told of my ways, what's it say? You answered me. That's a beautiful thought. God, when I told you what I was doing, when I told of my ways, you answered me. You talked back. You didn't let those words be lost out into the universe. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. If you're downhearted, if you're crushed in your spirit, look at verse 28. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your well, what is it? Is it happiness? Yes. Is it sorrow? Yes, it's that too. Is it a childlike prayer that you won't be forsaken? Yes, it's that too. How can all of those things be together simultaneously in the space of a few dozen verses? And I haven't even read the rest of it to you, and I won't. I want you to do that this week. It's all here. There's nothing you're going through that God doesn't know and care about. He loves you so deeply, so intensely, so faithfully that He actually sent His Son to become a human being and live and obey Him in your place to trade His obedience and His righteousness for your disobedience and your sinfulness and mine. And all of that is told in His Word. It will show you the way through life. It will get you back on the path when you stray. It will comfort you in deep agony. And it will help you keep your priorities in order as well. Look in verse 36. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Now, the Psalms, most of them, Psalms are written over several centuries, but most of the Psalms that have an author 
where the author is named. The author most frequently is David, and David lived a thousand years before Jesus. So most of the Psalms that we can date and name the author are 3,000 years old. Psalm 119 from that antiquity says, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. My question to you, do human beings still care about selfish gain? Absolutely. Human nature has not changed in 3,000 years. It's always the same. The temptation for selfish gain is acknowledged in Scripture. Once you begin to read your Bible, you're going to discover that God, your heavenly Father, is a very generous God, and as He grows you up, He wants you to be generous in return, just like every wise father and mother. Nobody's trying to raise selfish kids. Are you trying to raise selfish kids? You want a kid who always says, mine? Who always says no when asked to share? Who always pouts when they're asked to do something for someone else? Nobody wants to raise that kid. Neither does your heavenly Father. And you're going to see that theme running all the way through the Bible, and a hint of it is here in verse 36, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Selfish gain is a permanent, chronic human temptation to displace God. In verse 37 says, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. You ever tempted to look at worthless things? Now, again, this is over 2,000 years old. Do you think it's gotten better or worse in terms of our interest and ability to see worthless things? Much worse. You have, same as me, a permanent distraction in your pocket or purse all day long. This is a great prayer. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me instead, what? Life in your ways. See what the world, the flesh, the devil, your own forgetfulness would have you do is waste your life not by doing evil things, but by simply giving your time and energy and vision away to things that don't matter at all. Worthless things. Not even evil things, just worthless things. Things that won't even matter later that day, much less in eternity. That's the temptation. That's why there's this constant refrain of exposing the world's priorities and a request instead, give me life in your ways. That's why the daily time that you spend with God is so important. The world and the devil would have you believe that if you come to church and maybe you're in a small group, you can think of those as meals and hopefully they're well prepared and hopefully they're nourishing to you. You'll just come to church, hear somebody teach the Bible, hear your small group leader open the Bible, maybe jump in a little bit in the discussion. So you've had two good spiritual nourishing meals a week. And the rest of the week can be given away to airy, worthless junk food. What would you, what kind of shape would you be in physically if you only actually nourished yourself two out of 21, 22 meals a week? You'd be in danger. You would be far under the, your God-given capacity of enjoying life physically. The same thing is true spiritually. And here's the best thing about Scripture. Scripture, according to Jesus, will take you to Him. Scripture will take you to Jesus. 
I want you to read the Bible with me now in John chapter 5, verse 39. Let me set the scene so you understand that Jesus is speaking, and He is speaking to people who knew the Scriptures, knew their Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, in a way that you and I can't even literally begin to imagine. According to tradition, the most accomplished of these scholars in Jesus' day might have actually known the Hebrew Scriptures in their entirety by heart. Now, that seems like a fiction. That seems like you made that up. I'll remind you, ancient cultures were given to orality. In other words, their cultures and traditions for centuries and millennia were passed on in stories and things that people remembered. And the Hebrews not only had that context around them, they were a devoutly literate group because God had given them His Word in writing. They treasured writing and reading and along with that, they treasured memorizing and remembering and thinking and pondering what the Bible calls meditating. So Jesus is speaking to men who knew the Old Testament in a way that no one alive does. And here's what He told them. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Anything wrong so far? Is it good to search the Scriptures? Is it good to have an expectation that you will find life in them? It's what we've been reading in Psalm 119, right? You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about what? Me. And here's the trouble. Verse 40, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have you understand what they had done wrong? All their searching of the Scripture had led them to the false expectation that if they knew the Scripture alone, they would have life. Jesus says the Hebrew Scriptures point forward to me. The trouble is not that you don't know the Scriptures. You do, but you don't believe their main focus. You don't understand their central message. They bear witness about me, and the fatal tragedy is you refuse to come to me that you may have life. A.W. Tozier, a great pastor in Chicago in the 1940s, explains that God did not give Scripture as a means unto itself, but as a means for you to know Him. You can know the Bible deeply and not have it make a single difference to you if you don't enter into the personal knowledge and loving obedience to your heavenly Father. I can introduce you to friends of mine who went to Ivy League divinity schools and studied with world-renowned professors, sometimes as their research assistants. They knew practically everything the Bible taught and believed, not a word of it. And in all their knowledge, they missed life. So you, on the contrary, when you sit down with your Bible later today or at a minimum tomorrow morning, as soon as you can pay attention, remember that you're sitting with another person. God is spirit. Jesus remains incarnate, but He is presently in glory. He will someday return as He once came, but for now, you're in a personal relationship with God who you cannot see, but He's no less real. So here's what you should do. 
Here's what will happen for me sometime tomorrow. I'll sit down with my Bible, lest I become a hypocrite and don't do a single thing I'm advising to you, which I plan very strenuously not to do. I'll sit down with my Bible after a great deal of coffee, and I'll have coffee with me as well. <laughs> because it's a personal relationship. And this may be praiseworthy or blameworthy, but I can't pay much attention to people in the morning unless there's been sufficient, strong coffee. So I'll sit down. Finally got an amen out of this crowd. It took, uh, <laughs> took 30 minutes, but here we are. So then I'm just going to quiet myself and I'm going to remind myself that this is not a textbook and this is not a homework. God who gave His Word in writing is actually willing to speak to me through it. His Holy Spirit inspired it and His Holy Spirit will also illuminate it and explain it to me. So I'm going to pray to God and say, I'm here. And I might even tell Him a little bit about myself, which He already knows. If I'm especially tired, I'll tell him that. If I'm discouraged, I'll share that. If I'm grateful for things that have happened here in the church and my family, I'll share that as well. And then I'll just say, help me pay attention. And I'll start reading. That's what I want you to do. I want you to have a daily plan. I want you to make an appointment with God. That's where it all begins. You're dealing with a person, so you actually have the privilege of putting God, think of the audacity of this, you can put God on your calendar, and He'll show up. He'll always be there. In fact, Jesus promised to be with you every day until the end of the age, and you need to keep that appointment because according to Jesus, the time that you will spend there is more important than you realize. Matthew chapter 4 verse 4 says this, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The context here is Jesus Himself, God incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ, is being tempted by Satan. And to deflect and defeat temptation, Jesus actually quotes Scripture, and He says this, man shall not live by bread alone. Bread matters. Bread is a stand-in in the ancient world for food. Man will not live by food alone. Man will also live by something else, by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And may I suggest to you, many Christians are physically well-fed and spiritually starving. You need to see it as a meal. And the single reason that most Christians are not avid, regular Bible readers, I'm convinced, is because they're perfectionists. I don't want a show of hands because that's not the point. I just want to ask as a point of reflection. How many of you made a New Year's resolution to read the Bible? No hands. No looking at each other. We got enough marriage counseling and mentoring going on here without, uh, <laughs> without starting something in church, okay? How many have all kind of broken that commitment? Got to Leviticus and kind of trailed off. That's perfectionism. Let me help you with that. If you're ever so busy that you miss a meal, do you then say, well, I miss lunch. I guess I'll skip dinner too. <laughs> well, skip dinner, lunch. Well, I guess I'll have breakfast. I guess I'll just give up eating. Does anybody ever do that? <laughs> no. You miss a meal. You plan the next one with a little more 
gumption with a little more intensity. You make demands. I didn't have lunch. Let's go to, let's go to the good tacos. <laughs> it's not Tuesday. I don't care. I didn't have lunch. Let's, let's go big. Have that, have that attitude with your Bible reading. If you miss something, don't get down on yourself. Just get right back to it. Have the next good meal you can. And here's what you should do as you read. You should ask questions as you read. Questions like this. What am I told to do? What am I forbidden or warned against doing? Is there a promise here for me? And sometimes that promise is given by direct instruction where God explicitly in writing promises something to you, or that promise may be made by example. You may be shown, for instance, the raw honesty of David to confess his sins and receive the promise thereby that if you're honest with your sins the way David was with his, you'll receive his forgiveness and you'll receive again the joy of your salvation. Is there, finally, something that you can do to put this into practice? What can I do to put what I'm reading into practice? This, friends, asking questions of the Bible as you read it, not just to read without intelligence as a parrot might mimic words, but actually sitting down quietly, and if you get five verses and enter deeply into relationship with God with a very small portion of God's Word, that's a good day. You heard from Him. He made you sit up straight. He encouraged you. He comforted you. He picked your soul up out of the dust, or He knocked you off your high horse. It depends on what you need on any given day. But if you keep reading the Bible... God will show you things in His Word, and even when what you read doesn't apply directly to your circumstances, the Word that you've put in your heart before has a strange way of bubbling back up and coming to you at the right time and rescuing you. This is the prayer and Bible reading connection. As you pray, you ask God for things. You confess things to God, and you give thanks to God. Let's practice. Open your Bibles again in Psalm 119 if you've lost your place there. And I just want you to read through, beginning in verse 1, read with, set yourself the goal of reading all the way to 16, but don't make it the goal to get to 16. Just read asking one or more of these questions as you go, and just discover for yourself in the couple minutes we're going to give to this Ask yourself what God would have you learn from what you're reading. If you're with us online, thank you for being here. Please don't waste your time by looking me at, the, at me in the camera. That would be terrible for you. Open your Bible too. Do what the people who are here in person are doing. We're opening Psalm 119, and we're just thoughtfully reading to see what the Lord would say to us.
can still see heads down and pins moving, and that's great. I want you to carry that into tomorrow. How might this work? Well, I've been looking at verse 16. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. And that made me think. As a pastor, am I delighting in what God has commanded? That's what statutes are. Do I delight in it? It's a question I ask myself. It pertains to me and to other pastors, maybe not to you. Is it something I delight in? Or something I dig into to have something to teach to others? Both are good. Delight is better. You can dig into something to make a presentation, taking no delight in it. People who go to insurance seminars do it all the time. Okay? They're doing a job. There's not much delight, generally. And if I was thinking, if I delight in what God said, of course I won't forget it. You don't easily forget things that you delight in. I've been with people, quite a few now, all these years of pastoring, on their deathbeds. They always talk about their children. If they have any memory left at all, if they've left any health, any cognitive ability at all, they don't really talk about the house that they spent so much time and money on. They don't mention their career. They talk about people, and they talk about the people they delighted that's what the psalmist is after here. God, you've spoken. It's a commitment. He's not even saying that he presently does it. Notice that. I will delight in your statutes. I, this is a resolve for me. This is a commitment I'm making. So my prayer might be, Lord, if I discover that I'm more a student than a man who takes delight in what you're saying, please forgive me. And as I study, give me delight in it. Whether I teach it or not, whether you show me something that's entirely for me, that's not meant at this time to be taught to anybody else, help me delight every time I open my Bible. And friends, you won't because you're a human being and you're easily distracted and your heartbreak and your physical pains may pull you away from the attention that God deserves. Just stick with it, please. Don't wait. Keep going back to Him. It's the consistency. It's the daily walk that will make all the difference. You have an amazing privilege. Anytime you open His Word, God will be there to explain it to you, to open it up to you. Nobody else will make that promise to you. The most devoted spouse, the most obedient, loving children cannot make you the assurance that every time you want to hear from them, you can and you will, and that what they say to you will be perfect. You just have to stick with it. And perfectionism is the enemy. My wife and I have had over three wonderful decades together as husband and wife, and we've had some great dates, and we had our second date was absolutely terrible. By mutual agreement, it's the worst date either one of us had ever had, except in her case, I think I come in second, because she actually had a guy throw up on her when she was in high school, and I'm so grateful for that guy, because he's got the number one spot on lock. We just had a bad time, and here's why that happened. It happened because of me. I didn't really know where we were going. I got lost on where I intended to go. There's no GPS back in those dark ages. So I went to somewhere else, and that turned out to be a dingy 
dive of a nightclub, not the restaurant that I thought it was, and then we ended up at one of those restaurants that nobody goes to that you just end up at, and the music was so loud that I had to shout, and by this time she's sick of looking at me and hearing from me anyway, so I took her back to her dorm at the college we were both in, and she marched in and said, I'll go out with that guy when cows fly. Which is why somebody gave us a wooden cow mobile that hung in our kitchen our first few years of marriage. Why am I telling you that story? Because that personal encounter was not great, and it was all my fault. If you have an appointment with God that doesn't feel so great, it's not Him. He was there. And that's not to bring any shame or guilt to you. It's to give you the confidence just to keep showing up. And if you can't pay much attention to him, what do you do when you stop paying attention to somebody and kind of drift off? If you love them, you kind of snap out and say, I'm I'm sorry, what'd you say? Good friend of mine, really great preacher, actually. Well-known preacher, sent me a meme yesterday which gave me great comfort. It said, my wife said, you're not even listening to me, are you? And I thought, that's a strange way to start a conversation. (laughs) And I'm so glad he sent it to me because that kind of, it resonates in our house on my side. God will always listen. And if you don't listen and you can't pay attention, just snap out of it and get back to Him as soon as you realize that you're drifting and understand if you keep struggling with that, He knows you and loves you. He made you. You're His child. He knows how sin broke you. He knows your physical and mental ailments. There's no judgment with Him. All condemnation was poured out by the grace of God on His Son, Jesus Christ, who didn't deserve it so that He could treat you with perfect love and faithfulness and goodness for the rest of your days. Just keep the appointment. While you're there, please memorize some of it. Don't just read it memorized at least some of it. Psalm 119 verse 11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. If you will not just casually read, but you'll make the effort to put His word securely in the center of your being, which is your heart, the center of your life, you will then not sin against God. Here's a fourth and final thing you can do with the word of God. You can meditate on it. And meditate in the Hebrew Scriptures has this strange idea of murmuring or talking to yourself or mumbling. It's a guy that's so consumed with something that he keeps turning it over in his mind and talking about it and talking himself through it. That's the idea, that it's not just a casual reading, but maybe if something really grabs you, if God shows you something to correct you, to bless you, to encourage you, you take that into your heart, you memorize it, and you spend the rest of the day thinking about it. Psalm 119 verse 15 says, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. It's a commitment. I'm going to keep thinking about it. I'm going to keep pondering. I'm going to think about how I can obey this. I'm going to think about what you said, and I'm going to keep my eyes on your ways. This may all sound very cognitive, very mental, but it's not. It's extremely practical. Look at Psalm 119, verse 23. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Here the psalmist portrays himself as someone who's oppressed, who has the authorities after him. 
They are conspiring against him. What's he doing? He says in this verse, I'm going to think about what you said. I'm going to keep as they plot against me, when they come against me, I'm going to spend my time thinking about what you said. And the very next verse says that your word is his counselor. Now, I've had that experience. We lived for many years outside of the United States, first with my mom and dad and then with my wife and kids. And the government was generally nice to us, but not always. There were a few times where the authorities made a decided menacing turn against us, and that's why that psalm is in the sermon. It came to mean a lot to me because it gave me the confidence, the security, not in myself, but in God, when they were after me to keep quiet and to think about not them, but my heavenly Father and all the things that He had promised. Simply put, friends, you can read the Bible without knowing God, but you can't know God without reading the Bible. Let's get to know Him better together. There's resources right under that sheet for $40 or $50 if you have it. You can buy a couple things in the physical world, a study Bible and a book that will teach you how to read the Bible. There's a wealth of online digital free resources that I've sent you there. And guess what? You're part of a church family. You have pastors and deacons and small group leaders who love to learn the Scripture and love to share it with you. Do not walk this way alone. Let's get to know God better together. you pray with me, please? Lord, I pray that this would not be just one more motivational sermon to tell Christians what we already know we should do, but that even as I dismiss our service in prayer, you would create in us a holy resolve to meet with you later today and no later than tomorrow, that we would pay attention to you early in the morning or in the first hours where we actually can pay attention, whenever that is, morning, noon, or night, help us make an appointment and keep it that we may know you. We love you and we thank you and we ask God, give us the grace to keep the appointment and be blessed by it. I pray that in Jesus' name and Crosspoint says, amen.